Maybe? I think so? Okay. There we go. Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to the eight. We are on a really, like, I'm learning tons of stuff on this journey of studying a character in the Bible that many of us know of, and, but we really don't know many of his struggles and many of, of how real his life was. And like, I'm learning tons by diving deeper into his story, David, that I'm learning that I can really relate to him from his mistakes, from, from his decisions, from his hardships that he deals with. We can relate. We definitely can't relate to becoming a blue-collar worker, to becoming a national hero. We can't relate to that, but we can relate to his decisions and his mistakes, and we can relate to how, in the toughest times, he feels hopeless, and who he turns to for help. Maybe we can learn and relate to his story. So this is part three of our series on, on the prophet and the king, uh, as we look at this historical leader from the 11th century B.C., named David. Over the past couple of weeks, we've been looking at different situations, different hardships, different events that occurred in David's life. And one that we talked about a couple of weeks ago that, that still resonates with me is that David made a mistake that many of us do, is that we make decisions, we, see, we say things and do things purely off of emotions and realize that when I'm emotionally driven and I do actions or make decisions off of emotions, this is when I fall into a trap or make a mistake that I eventually regret. But instead of being emotionally driven, that I'm called to be spirit-led and making the right decisions. Before we jump into today's story or this event that we have in the records of David's life, we can all agree on one statement. We can all agree on this. The greatest measure of maturity is how we handle authority. The greatest measure of maturity is how we handle authority or influence. Regardless of where you are in your career or in life, you have authority. Another word for authority is use the word influence. You have influence. Maybe on, on, on people around you, your friends, maybe in your family, maybe at work, that you have some type of authority, you have some type of influence, either at home, on a, on a home level, or maybe at a work level, or a school level, that you have some type of authority or influence on them. And the greatest level of maturity is how a person uses their authority. Like, there's nothing that inspires us more than when we see somebody of authority, somebody that has influence, using their position, using their authority to, to, to help others or to serve others. There's nothing that's more inspiring when we see that in someone. Someone that has their authority, instead of leveraging it for their benefit, nothing inspires us more than we see them using their benefit, uh, using their authority, their influence, to benefit others. But the opposite is true. We hate it when we see somebody that has authority and someone that has leverage using it for their own benefit. Somebody that's in a leadership role but using their position for their benefit and undermining others around them. There's nothing that we hate more than seeing that. Let me just throw in a little rant. Speaking of authority that's being abused, you know what I hate at weddings, at Orthodox weddings? I hate. Many of you guys already know what I'm about to say. I hate when we have the prayer where it says, wives, submit to your husband. And the husbands are like, and they're, and, 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 and they're looking at their groomsmen like, they're going like this as they're wearing their cape and they feel they're all that. We laugh about it because we see it, but I hate seeing that. I hate seeing that. Because as a husband, we have 
authority. We have influence, not in a dominant role, not, not that we're, we're higher than, than a wife, but we have a divine responsibility to honor our wife, to submit to them. It's not just a one-way thing. But anytime a husband says, you have to obey me, I'm the husband, I'm, you're supposed to submit to me. Didn't you remember that we heard that at our wedding? Anytime I hear a husband say that, man, anytime I hear a husband say that, that nothing, ugh, nothing, nothing bothers me more than hearing that. It's easy for us to look at other people that have leverage, that have authority, that have influence, and they say, man, I, if, if I were them, I wouldn't be doing that. Like, and we see like, they're making dumb decisions as a leader. Uh, they have authority, they have influence, and they're making poor decisions. It's easy for us to look at them and, and say that. But many of us wouldn't know what we would do if we were in that position ourselves. I, growing up, I used to complain, why don't we do this at church? Or why isn't everyone doing this or whatever? But not being on this side, like I get it. Like it's easy on the back side to say this or this or this about the person that has authority. But we don't know what we would do if we were wearing that hat. Or in the case of David, we wouldn't know if we were wearing his crown. How would we deal with hardships and conflict and tension that come our way if we were in David's shoes? Just to give some background of David. So when David was in middle school, like he was just a little kid, him and he was just one of tons of other brothers in his family. And he was called to fight Goliath. And because of his courage, because of his boldness, because of his confidence in knowing who God was to him, he stood up, had the boldness to, 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 to act on it and, and, and to say, man, God's on my side. I know what I'm doing because I know who I am in front of my father's eyes, in my heavenly father's eyes. And he took a huge step and defeated Goliath. And from that point, this middle school kid became the most popular guy in the nation of Israel. And everyone wanted to be around him, including King Saul, who was the first king of Israel in the 11th century BC. So King Saul now is seeing David, this punk kid, rise to popularity. And everyone's like, everyone's around David. And King Saul's like, man, I need to get this kid in my family. I need him to marry one of my kids. So that way, like, you know, I, I'm, he's under my wing and I can kind of control him. And tension arose between, uh, between King Saul and David over, over the years to the point that David had to run for his life. And he ended up becoming a fugitive for eight years, running away because King Saul wanted him dead. At one point, while David, like, before David started running away as a fugitive, before David was running away as a fugitive, one of the leaders of the nation of Israel was Samuel the prophet. And Samuel, his, one of his responsibilities was to appoint and assign the next king of Israel, to assign the next king of Israel. So, so, so Solomon the prophet had this responsibility of finding the next king. So he goes to a house, to, to a father, and says, hey, you know what, I'm, 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 I'm seeing where God wants to lead me to appoint the next leader. And so he goes to the, to, to the father and says, hey, you know, where are all your sons? Uh, you know, bring them all here. Let's have dinner together. You know, I feel like God's going to give me a wink or give me clarity as far as who's the next king uh, of Israel. And they all come out, and king, I mean, uh, prophet Solomon says, you know, are these all the, your sons? It's kind of an awkward question. And I was like, well, actually, there is one, like, little one. He's just out in the field. And Solomon brings, and, and Solomon, uh, Samuel says, bring him in. Bring him in. 
So it was, when they came, that he looked at Eliab. So, when, uh, so Solomon, uh, Samuel, I'm sorry, Samuel, when he looked at Eliab, which is the oldest son of, of the father, he said, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. So now Samuel's saying, here's the oldest son out of all these guys. I'm sure, like, I'm sure this is the one that, the, the, that God wants to anoint as the next leader of Israel. You know, he's, he's the oldest, he's the tallest, and it only makes sense that God wants him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Many of us would do what Samuel did. Look for the oldest guy, the one, the tallest guy, he's handsome. He, seem, he looks king-like. He looks like he can be a king. But then God said, don't, don't, don't just look for the outward appearance, but look at the heart. Ladies, single ladies, don't just look at the physical appearance. It's more than that. Gentlemen, uh, you're hopeless. Anyway. <laughs> but it's the truth. So Samuel then finds David, and he says, and he gets a nudge from God, where God made it clear to him that you are the next king of Israel. So Samuel anoints David in the ancient tradition of anointing him with oil. As so, if someone was going to be anointed or appointed to a new role or have a new responsibility, especially a divine responsibility, that the, the prophet or the, 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 someone would anoint that person with oil. This occurred in the 11th century B.C., here we are centuries and centuries later, and we still have the exact same practice. When we want to set someone apart for a new divine role or divine responsibility, we anoint them with oil, just as the, Jew, uh, the ancient Jewish tradition, and we continue to do the same. Anytime someone says, you know what, I don't just want to be, just get married just for the sake of getting married and just for a tax break, I want a divine marriage. So when they come and, and, and to, to, the, to the crowning ceremony, to the wedding ceremony, the church anoints them with oil and says, you know what, this husband is not just a normal husband, this wife is not just a normal wife. Now this is a divine couple where mystically the two are becoming one. Now they have a divine responsibility as husband and wife and we anoint them with oil. When there is something that's going to be used specifically for God's altar, like a chalice or a patent, we anoint it with oil and says, you know what, this is not just a dish that we can use, just use for breakfast tomorrow. This is appointed for a specific reason. To so set it apart, we anoint it with oil. And if you are baptized into this ancient faith, into this one holy Catholic and apostolic church, the church says, you know what? You're not ordinary. You're extraordinary. You're not just another person, but you are God's chosen child. And God loves you so much, and he has a great purpose for you. And the church appoints you and anoints you with oil. And that tradition is what the church has been doing has continued this Jewish tradition throughout the centuries, and we continue to do it in our ancient faith. David's anointed. David's anointed, and he knows he's the next king. And there ends up being a lot of conflict, a lot of turmoil, a lot of hardships that come along David's way. But through all of it, and through him being a fugitive and running away for his life with him and his group, running away from Saul because they know his life, his life is in danger, there's one thing that David completely understood 
that set him apart. And this is what made him the greatest leader of the nation of Israel. And this is why we, we, we honor and reflect on his life centuries later. Because he understood one thing very clearly. That it is God's will. It is God's way. In God's time. David understood, I have a certain role with God. And I understand that, you know what, I just have a specific role that, that God is wanting me to play. God is anointing me as leader? Okay, he anoints me as leader. But I understand that his way is more than my way. That his timing is above my timing. And his way is above my way. And this is what made him such an extraordinary godly man because he understood that. So David is running away from his life. David is a fugitive with him and his close friends, and he's trying to away, run away from King Saul. During his, his eight years of running away and, and, and trying to stay alive, he had several opportunities to kill King Saul. He had several opportunities to kill the first leader and, because he knew that he was going to eventually become the next king. He had many opportunities to kill King Saul, but he really didn't act on it like many of us would do. One time... King Saul, I mean, David was hiding in a cave. And he's in, hiding in the cave with his friends being safe. And all of a sudden, he, King Saul is coming down, and he sees King Saul coming. And King Saul says, you know what, I need to take care of business. I need to go for a potty break. So King Saul goes into the cave. It's one of the only times in the entire Bible that you hear about a bathroom break. But, so King Saul comes into the cave. But, you know, his eyes are not adjusted yet to the darkness of the cave, and David's in there. And David sees King Saul coming in to take care of business. And David is thinking, is this, is this my time? Is this my time? I have a great opportunity. In the most vulnerable state, somebody's in the most vulnerable state of taking care of business. This is my opportunity to kill. I know that I'm appointed to be king. This is my opportunity to kill King Saul. And David's friend says this. The men said, with David's friends, this is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with, with as you wish. Then David crept up unnoticed, and cut off a corner of Saul's rope. Like David's friends are saying, dude, like, we know what, David, what God told you. God told, we know that God appointed you. We know that God has great plans for you to become leader. This is it. This is the day that the Lord has given you. But instead of David acting out of emotion and an opportunity, he said, you know what? I'm not going to replace what God already has in place. I'm not going to put in and interject into God's story. I understand God already has a plan for me, and I know that he has great plans for me. And I know I have a purpose and I have a role. But I'm not going to interrupt what God has already has in place. But just for fun, David just cuts off a part of, of King Saul's robe. And after he's done taking business and he's walking out, he says, hey, Saul, I had an opportunity. But I decided not to. And King David says this. May the Lord, hey, Saul, may the Lord judge between you and me. And may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me. But my hand ain't going to touch you. My hand is not going to touch you. King, Saul, uh, king David, or he's not a king yet, David had another opportunity to, king, to kill King Saul. Had a great, another opportunity that many of us don't know about to take care of him, to, 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 to bring uh, King Saul down. So David was, was with his friend Abishai, and they, were, they see King Saul at a camp with all his soldiers, all his security guards, getting ready for the night, and they're sleeping. And they're, so how it is is King Saul would sleep in the middle, and then all his security guards and all his protection will be around him, protecting King Saul at night as I slept. So, so David and his friend Abishai are going 
and coming really close to King Saul. And as we read, so David and Abishai, his friend, went to the army by night, and there was Saul lying asleep inside the camp with his spear stuck in the ground near his head. So the, traditionally, you would sleep next to your spear as protection. Like, and, 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 and so they see King Saul sleeping next to his, with his spear in his hand. Abner, which is like the head of the, the, head, the director of the security team protecting King Saul. Abner and the soldiers were lying around him. Abishai said to David, Today God has delivered your enemy into your hands. Now let me pin him to the ground with one thrust of the spear. I won't have to even have to strike him twice. Abishai is now telling his friend David, listen, this, this is the opportunity. You screwed it up last time. This is your opportunity. Like, we got through all the security guards. We got through Abner, the head of the security guard. Like, this is our opportunity. Like, this is the day. Like, like this is God's will, man. Take advantage of this opportunity. But David said to Abishai, don't destroy him. Who can lay a hand on the Lord's anointing and not feel guilty? Instead of being emotionally driven and making a decision, he said, hey, don't, 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 don't touch him. Don't kill him. Who can lay a hand on, on the Lord's anointed? He's, if we like it or not, this, this is the place, this is what God has already put in place. Who am I to interrupt it and, and, and interject at this point and do this? And how can I do this without being overwhelmed with guilt? Yes, of course I have an opportunity. Of course, maybe I can be creative and say this is God's will, this is God's will, just for me to do what I want. But how can I do this without feeling guilty of doing it? David refused to replace what God already has in place. David refused to replace what God already had in place. He understood this is not my time, it's God's time. It's not my will, it's God's will. And this is why in our ancient faith, a prayer that we say 10,000 times, and it's intentional because this is the template prayer that Jesus gave us, that we continue to say, your will be done. Because it is so easy. It is so easy. I mean, logical. I mean, it's logical like, that David's friend is saying, come on, this is God's will. We know that you're anointed. We know that God has big plans for you. This is your opportunity. This is God's will. But he says, it's not, it's not my way, but it's his way. Because his will will be done, not mine. After running for eight years as a fugitive, there comes a time where King Saul dies and the next in command, which is Jonathan, which is King Saul's uh, son, King Saul's son, Jonathan both die. So naturally, there is a great opportunity for David now to come to become king because he's already anointed to become king. But one of King Saul's other sons becomes a king, and he, get, he controls 11 tribes, and David only gets one little tribe. But the entire nation knows that King David is the real leader. The nation knows that King David is the real leader and, and, and appointed to be the next king. And history shows us that to show that, like, they wanted to prove to David that, hey, King Saul died, Jonathan died, and, and the, the, another son died. And they wanted to come and show King Saul that, hey, you're the next leader. See, we killed all of them. They would bring the head to David and say, hey, listen, he's dead. Now you're the next king. Like, we should be joyful. We should have a party. Now you don't have to continue to run as a fugitive. Now you don't just control one tribe. You have all 12 tribes. Now you're the king. You're the ruler. You're the man. Like, everyone's dead. You're the next one. This is God's timing. And here's David's response. David answered Kiba and his brother Banah, the sons of Simon. Don't, don't worry about the names. And he says, as surely as the Lord lives, 
as surely, this is David saying, as surely as the Lord lives, who has delivered me, just as surely as the Lord lives and has been working in my life since I was in middle school, just as the Lord has been dynamic and personal and working in my life, as surely as the Lord lives, who has delivered me out of every single trouble that I put myself into. When someone told me that Saul is dead and thought he was bringing some good news, I seized him and put him to death. That was the reward I gave him for his news. The guys come and telling them that, hey, you know, the previous leaders are dead. dead. Now you're the next one in leader. And, 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 and they thought David would be ecstatic, be happy. Yes, now it's my turn to be king. But David actually was mad. And he actually put him to death. How much more, how much more the wicked men have killed an innocent man in his own house and on his own bed. Now David's giving it to the guys that killed the other son, Eshbosheth, that's his name. That now, now David is giving to them, saying, now you killed an innocent guy that was naturally the offspring of Saul, that was going to be king. Now you killed him? How much more, when wicked men have killed an innocent man in his own house and on his own bed, should I not now demand his blood from your hand and rid the earth of you? Now the guys are like, dude, why is David like spazzing out like this? Like he's the new king. Like all the other leaders are dead. Like he should be happy. Now he's getting, getting mad at us because we killed and, and, and wanted God's will to be done and for David to be king. David finally becomes king. David finally becomes king. And all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, We are your own flesh and blood, David. In the past, while Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel on their military campaigns. We know, we knew, we know that you were the one with the, with the influence. Yeah, maybe King Saul was wearing the crown, but we know that you were the one that had authority and had influence from your position. Yeah, you might not have been here, but we knew that from where your, your, your role was, we knew that you had position. We knew that you were leading up, that you were influencing others around you, even though you weren't wearing the crown. And the Lord said to you, you will shepherd my people Israel, and you will become the ruler. When all the elders of Israel had come to King David at Hebron, now, when all the Israel, all, all of the nation of Israel have come around David to celebrate, this is the party, this is the reception of him now becoming king. The king made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned 40 years. The king to make a covenant. The king is now coming to the people and says, hey, listen, I know I'm king, but you know what? I need accountability, that I want to make a promise with you, and not, not just a promise with you, but my promise with you is actually a promise to God. You're the king, man. You're the dictator. You can do whatever you want. You're above the rules. You're above the laws. You're above the people. Now you're making a covenant, a, covenant, a promise to the people to, to, to have accountability. You're the king. You're above the law. You're above the rule. Now the... You have waited so many years, David. This is your opportunity to reign. You don't have to run away anymore. And the first thing you say at your celebration of your inaugural celebration of being king, that you want accountability? You want the people to keep you in check as a king? You are the king, man. David understood leadership. David understood leadership. He understood that he has influence around him. That regardless of his position, as a middle school kid, as a fugitive, as a, sec a third in command after King Saul, 
or as a king, he understood that he has influence. And he's not the king, but he is a king for the king. And this is what made David great. That he understood, I have a role that belongs to God. I, God has, made me, uh, has given me power to overcome life. Okay, let it be. Your will be done. You want me to, to influence those around me, my friends? Okay, I will do that. You want me to become king? Okay, your will be done. And he led them because he knew that he had authority and influence, but he used, he leveraged his authority to impact and influence others, and not just for his benefit. He had every right to do that, but he decided not to. And he decided instead of leading from on top and leading down, he actually was leading up and leading people closer to God and inspiring others. He understood that he is a steward. That what I, have, what I have, I didn't do anything to get it. This is what God gave me, my creator gave me, my heavenly father gave me. So I use it, not for my benefit, but for the benefit of others because it is not mine in the first place. This is what made David so great. This is why centuries later we use his journal book, his prayers, to guide us in prayer because of his boldness and for his clarity of understanding that it's not me. I'm not the king. I'm just a king for the king. A thousand years later, a thousand years later after this record, and just actually 20 miles north of where this occurred, where David became a king, there was a man by the name of Jesus that modeled this exact same and he wanted to make it extremely clear of what leadership looks like, what influence looks like. We read from the record recorded by the youngest disciple, St. John. Now before the feast of the Passover, which is a huge Jewish celebration, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. FYI, this, these, this, this verse is where we get our ancient prayers of our divine liturgy from this part right here. And supper being ended, the devil having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God. So Jesus is understanding things are about to go down tomorrow. He, he understood things are coming to an end here this Thursday night after this supper. Jesus rose from supper and laid aside his garments. What Jesus did right here as a leader, as an influencer, someone with authority, this left a tremendous impact on those 12 guys that were around Jesus. Jesus took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. And the 12 guys are saying, Jesus, you're Jesus, man. We saw you, like, you, we saw you, like, raise somebody from the dead. The guy was dead. He was stinking. And you, we saw you raise him from the dead. We saw you do crazy things. We saw you took five loaves and the two pieces of small fish. We saw you feed 10,000 people through it. We saw you do crazy things. We got people that wash our feet. Like, we got people to do that. Why you don't do that? I'll get some of the other servants to do that. You don't need to do that. You're Jesus. But Jesus led by example. 
He used his authority and leveraged it to aid others and to serve others and put his words now into action. Jesus said this, If I, then, your Lord, if I, being God with skin on me, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Jesus is telling him, this is what leadership looks like. That you give your, slide, your life down for others and you serve others. It's not about you. That you are designed to live for others. You are designed to give your life to others. Just as I have given you an example, now you continue to follow the example that I have put before you. Because my example that I'm putting before you as, as now washing your feet and serving you, I'm doing this for you to have the fullness of life. And I desire, I, 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 I lose sleep because I want you to have the fullness of life. And the fullness of life requires you to give yourself up for others. That whatever position that you are in, you are called to give up that authority, that influence, and leverage that not for your benefit, but for the benefit of others. Every single one of us wears a crown. Every single one of us wears some type of crown. David had a crown of him being the king of the nation of Israel. You are wearing a crown in some way. As a father, as a husband, as a wife, as a mother. Maybe your, your social circle. Maybe as your position at work. You're wearing some type of crown if you realize it or not. You have some type of influence on the people around you if you realize it or not. What feet are you called to wash? What feet are you called to wash? What hat are you wearing? What crown are you wearing? You, you have some type of authority and some type of leverage. What, whose feet are you called to wash? This occurred in a room that belongs to St. Mark, one of the early Christians, who brought Jesus, the, the, the good news of Jesus and the fullness of life, to the country of Egypt. St. Mark records the, the, the life events of Jesus that he got from Peter, who's in this picture, in this icon. And Peter ends up telling St. Mark all the events that occurred with Jesus, and St. Mark ends up writing and recording that in a manuscript that we have today as the gospel according to St. Mark, the one who ended up bringing the news of Jesus to the land of Egypt. And St. Mark records this. For even the Son of Man did not come to, to be served. Jesus did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus didn't come to be served, he came to give his life. The verse that we, that, that almost every Christian loves to, to, to repeat. God so loved the world that he gave, served, continued to push unconditional love to others without requiring or asking anything back in return. This is the example that Jesus gave us. Imagine, imagine in your position, in your role, and in whatever way, in your social circle, with your friends, with your position at work or at school, wherever you are, imagine, what can I do in my marriage? What, what, what can I do in my marriage to continue to push out love and to push service? What 
feet do I need to wash? Imagine, imagine what the world would look like, everyone that is in some type of leadership role, which is every single breathing person. Imagine if we continue to ask ourselves, what is my role? Whose feet am I called to wash? My leadership role, maybe I, I don't see myself as much. I promise you, whatever role you have, you are impacting the people around you. And the question that should be going through is, what or whose feet am I called to wash? Let's stand up for a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Lord, thank you for preserving this, this historical life and event and, and, and events that occurred in David's life. That through him, that we can see what leadership looked like. And actually through his lineage, we receive you. Lord, we thank you so much for, for making it crystal clear what leadership look like, what looks like, what does authority look like, what does influence look like, and help us to not just react on our natural reflex of doing what's best for us and to serve ourselves, but for, in order for us to find the fullness of life as you have given us that we are called to serve others. Lord, help us to, to, to put some type of itch or something inside of our heart for us to, to ask ourselves, whose feet am I called to wash? Through the prayers of all your saints, here says we pray together saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one, in Christ Jesus, our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. All right, so just a couple of quick reminders.